Hey everyone, and welcome back to Black and Cold, a true crime podcast. I am Michelle, your host, and I am back this week with another case. Before I jump into today's very puzzling episode, I just want to give my listeners a quick reminder that I do take case suggestions. So if there is a particular case that you'd like to see be covered on this podcast, you can send a suggestion into me which I will leave that link in this episode's show notes. So the case I'm going to be talking about today is very bizarre, but it's troubling. I actually found out about this young man's disappearance from the Charlie Project, which I tend to use as a source on many of my episodes involving missing people. This case hasn't received much media attention at all, The articles are very scarce. There's not a lot of information that is out there. And it was quite difficult to put a specific timeline together because of that. But this case is only three years old. And I really want to shed some light on it because not only does it seem very suspicious to me, but it deserves attention. And someone out there has to know something. This is the disappearance of Michael McLean. Michael, also known as Mike McLean, was born and raised in Stamford, Connecticut. He grew up very close to both of his parents, Paula and Edward, as well as his little sister. As a child, Michael's father gave him the nickname Little Man, and as years went by, that name continued to stick with him, and as Michael got older, Edward actually ended up dropping the little portion and began to refer to his son as just Man. Growing up, Michael was considered to be very athletic, and he loved sports, specifically basketball and football. In 2008, Michael would graduate from high school, and after a few years of remaining in Connecticut, he decided to make the move to New Hampshire to further his education. Michael then relocated to the neighborhood of Manchester, and he attended Hesser College, which is more recently known as Mount Washington College. And this is where Michael obtained his bachelor's degree in criminal justice. Michael's loved ones describe him as being outgoing, full of life, and a jokester who always made people laugh. Now, right before his disappearance, 29-year-old Michael was working at a nonprofit organization named Easter Seals, which provides services, resources, and support to people with disabilities. In Michael's department, he specifically worked with children with autism, and it was said that he had a good rapport with all of the people he worked with, meaning both the kids as well as his colleagues. And, you know, just him working in this type of field in general kind of speaks to his character. His co-workers say he was very genuine and passionate about the work that he did. On the evening of April 20th, 2019, Michael and a couple of his friends went out to the Tropical Lounge on West Hollis Street, which is in the city of Nashua, New Hampshire, almost 20 miles away from Manchester. 
And sometime as the night was winding down, there was actually an altercation that took place inside of the club. The altercation involved two women, and eventually it escalated outside. Now, the club was close to being over, so people were probably beginning to leave the spot anyway. But once this fight happened, a crowd began to form around outside. So Michael actually knew one of the young ladies involved in this situation, and he attempted to de-escalate everything that was going on by breaking up the fight. But as authorities arrived, which was reported to be around 1.45 a.m., now the early morning of April 21st, the crowd started dispersing from one another. And as all of this was going on, some way, somehow, Michael was separated from his friends and he just vanished. He was nowhere to be found. The people that Michael were with that evening tried to look for him after this incident took place, and they even waited it out for some time in case he would show back up to where they were all at last. But after about 45 minutes, they couldn't find him and he never returned. So from there, his friends knew this was odd, but they decided to leave, and this is when they realized Michael's car was still parked where he left it which was at his friend's house on Orange Street, which is just under a mile from the nightclub. And where his car was parked, you would have to cross over a bridge in order to get to it. But seeing his vehicle still there definitely had the people that Michael was with a little more concerned and confused. So this is when they began to try and contact him some more. They called and texted, but they were getting no answer apparently. Later on that day, which was again now April 21st, it was also Easter Sunday of that year. Michael, who would typically be in contact with his mom and his grandmother on this day, never reached out to them. And back in Connecticut, his family knew this was unlike him. He even missed his little sister's birthday, which is something he would never miss. He always contacted her for that as well. Michael's family tried to reach out to him by calls and texts that day, but just like his friends, they weren't getting a response either. Michael's phone was going straight to voicemail. It wasn't until the next day, on Monday, April 22nd, when Michael did not show up to work, that alarm bells really went off for his loved ones. Michael was very responsible when it came down to his job, He loved his job, and even if something for some reason was wrong or something came up, he would have made sure he contacted his boss or even his mom, who he spoke to all the time. But as Michael's phone continued to go to voicemail and no one knew where he was, that's when he was reported missing. Once an investigation began into Michael's disappearance, his phone activity and some video surveillance would really be the only clues to help piece together what may have happened to him after he left the tropical lounge. From what we know, Michael was last seen at the club between 1.30 and 1.45 a.m., right before the police showed up responding to that fight. It was learned that Michael then made a call to his boss at 1.49 a.m. where he said, quote, they're chasing me, there's more than one, end quote. The call lasted for a little over two minutes before it ended. Now it's not clear how the call ended, whether Michael hung up or they got disconnected somehow, 
but immediately his supervisor tried to call him back, but Michael didn't answer. The supervisor tried to call him back for a second time shortly before 2.30 a.m., and again, Michael didn't answer. His boss then tried to text him two times, but they never received a response. And just to be clear, Michael had a fairly close relationship with his boss, so for him to reach out to them, it wasn't unusual. His family says on many occasions, Michael would look to this boss for a ride after a night out of drinking or when he just needed any type of help. So again, they were close. But where things definitely get more troublesome and chilling is the text messages that came out that Michael sent. And these were all sent within a time frame of under 30 minutes after he made that call to this boss. And I'm just going to read you guys what the messages said and the times they were sent, according to his father, who was interviewed on Crawl Space podcast. At 1.55 a.m., Michael sent a text that said, quote, help, L-O-L, hour. At 1.56 a.m., he sent, Quote, Wada stood aloof, and I'm just going to spell that. So that's W-H-A-T-A space S-T-O-O-D space A-L-O-O-F. At 2.15 a.m., Michael then sent Eldridge Bro. And then at 2.18 a.m., he sent F-U-C-K space I space B-I-T-X-U. Michael sent two more texts after that. The last one went out at exactly 2.27 a.m. And according to his loved ones, this was the last activity on their son's phone altogether. Now, these texts definitely stick out because from an outsider's perspective, they just don't make any sense, right? And that's alarming, And some of these, matter of fact, all of these texts went out after Michael spoke with his supervisor, and this would have been during the time that the supervisor was actually trying to get back in contact with him. According to his father, these text messages were sent to Michael's neighbor. I don't know the extent of their relationship or even if they were the intended person he was trying to contact. But from what I got, the only text that made some type of sense to anyone was the one that said Eldridge, bro. So Eldridge is a small street not too far from where the Tropical Lounge was. Now, I'm not familiar with the area, but looking at it on Google Maps, it is a tiny side block described as kind of like an alleyway by Edward off of another block, which is right off of West Hollis Street which is where the nightclub was. So just so you guys get a better picture, this is a quick walk. It's a little over 1,000 feet. And Michael would have had to make two turns, maybe four, depending on which way he went, if he even went there, as we unfortunately can't confirm. During the investigation, the Nashua Police Department found that Michael's phone pinged sometime around 2 to 2.30 a.m. at a local 24-hour McDonald's on East Hollis Street. The police were able to speak with employees and witnesses who were there that morning, and they confirmed that they did remember seeing Michael there, closer to the 2.30 a.m. side, which is about 45 minutes, give or take, after he was last seen trying to break up that fight. 
And again, this timeline is really hard to narrow down only because the information is quite conflicting, which is confusing. And it appears there are so many different stories coming from different people, friends and authorities, to Michael's family. So it's really hard to put all the specifics together. But just from what we know, the police showed up at 1.45 a.m., give or take, at Tropical Lounge. Michael was nowhere to be found there after the cops came and the crowd dispersed. He next made this call to his boss at 1.49 a.m., who was the last person that he physically spoke to. And Michael said that he was being chased, indicating it was more than one person. Michael then sent that unusual string of texts to his neighbor or friend between 1.55 and 2.27 a.m. Now, we can't be sure, but from these messages, Michael may have been near Eldridge Street, which, per maps, was only about a four-minute walk from the nightclub. Lastly, if we're going by this timing, which kind of makes sense, Michael had to make his way to this McDonald's on East Hollis Street after all of that. This McDonald's is only about an eight-minute walk on a straight path from where the Tropical Lounge was, which makes it also walking distance from Eldridge Street. The Nashua police were able to obtain video surveillance from this McDonald's, and they found that Michael was there In that time frame that his phone pinged, and in that time frame, witnesses say they saw him. According to his parents, when they were actually able to see the footage of Michael, he didn't look in distress, he didn't look heavily intoxicated, like nothing from their end seemed wrong with him. They also learned that Michael purchased food, and he ate there at the McDonald's as well. As the search and investigation continued, it came out that Michael made his way to a Speedway gas station sometime after he left the McDonald's. The Speedway is on East Hollis Street, which West Hollis eventually turns into. And this is a straight path coming from this McDonald's and coming from the Tropical Lounge Club. Michael's father says his son asked an employee inside the gas station store to use their phone, but he has not been able to confirm if Michael actually made a call. More surveillance would later surface and reveal that after this, Michael was in the area of the Riverfront Landing apartment complex, which is under a mile from both the McDonald's and the Speedway. And this goes along with the straight shot I personally think Michael was trying to take that morning. According to Edward, the Nashua police told him that around 3.30 a.m., Michael was seen exiting the rear end of this apartment complex going towards the Merrimack River. And this, unfortunately, is the last sighting of him and where the footage of him ends. Even with all of the alarming activity on Michael's phone, authorities haven't received any leads getting them closer to locating him. Edward, Paula, and many of Michael's other loved ones made numerous trips back and forth to New Hampshire. They hung up flyers, held candlelight vigils, searched for themselves, and even talked to many locals who say they saw him. They have just been trying to piece together what happened to Michael that morning. 
The Lost and Missing Foundation has also aided in helping Michael's family spread his case and keep it out there, as it has received very little coverage. But nothing has come of any of this, and the investigation hasn't appeared to have made any significant movements in the past three years. Now, this could not be the case, and authorities just could be keeping everything tight-knit. However, at the end of the day, Michael's family is still left with no answers. This is really a curious disappearance, and I can't understand how it is not being spoken about, which is quite unfortunate that that is what's happening. Michael's parents have expressed their frustration with law enforcement, and they feel he hasn't been a priority to them. According to the Nashua Patch, the police didn't even consider Michael's disappearance as suspicious or in criminal nature, says Lieutenant Medeiros of the department. So I can definitely understand why Michael's parents feel the way that they do. Edward and Paula believe authorities have kind of written their son off and came up with the theory or assumption that they think happened. In their crawlspace interview, Edward says investigators believe that Michael may have accidentally drowned in the body of water behind the riverfront landing apartment complex, which is the Merrimack River, as he was last seen exiting the back of those residences. But dive teams were sent out to search, and nothing has been reported to be found in regards to Michael's case. Now, his parents dispute the drowning as there hasn't been a trace of their son anywhere, no clothing or anything. And they truly believe that this was just a premature theory concluded. Michael's phone activity is very concerning to them, starting from that phone call to his boss, then those texts that followed. So going back to these text messages, they can be looked at in many different ways. It suggested that Michael may have been using the text dictation or voice-to-text feature to send these messages, which can be a reason why they weren't making any sense at all. He could have very well been in danger, which is what his father believes, and he could have been running and was trying to look for help. So he sent these string of messages trying to communicate with someone, but his phone wasn't registering the words correctly. There's also the idea that Michael could have been trying to type as he was running. He was just typing fast, and this was the result. Could have been autocorrect, being annoying as usual, or just typos from too much movement. We really just don't know. But this case is concerning. I mean, he clearly called his supervisor and indicated he was being chased before his phone call ended. And you have to think, he was out that night partying with his peers, You ask yourself, maybe he was drinking a little too much. But his parents said Michael never got intoxicated to the point where he'd be belligerent like that and just wander off. Something had to make him leave that vicinity where he left the people he knew, the people he went out with. And we have to keep in mind that Michael was not from Nashua. His family says he wasn't even familiar with the area like that to just be going off by himself especially at this time of the morning. So Michael's father heard a rumor that the young lady who he knew that was involved in the actual fight may have had an ex-boyfriend that was in the club that night. And he heard that Michael danced with her while they were there. 
So this is just a theory that sticks as this could have been a jealousy or angry ex situation. And this could have been the reason why Michael maybe ran from his friends because he felt he was in some type of danger. This theory can kind of go along with the phone call to the supervisor as well, but there is really no confirmation. When Michael left Tropical Lounge, it seems he intended to continue along a straight path up West Hollis Street, which I mentioned eventually turns to East Hollis. Now, in my mind, and this is just me, he probably wanted to make his way to this McDonald's because it was more than likely one of the few things open at that time, as it was 24 hours, especially not being from this part of town. And I'm going to try and post a map to my Instagram so you guys can kind of see the route for yourselves that Michael took or was trying to take after he left the Tropical Lounge. It just makes so much more sense when you see it laid out. But it seems Michael deviated from his intended route, and this is how he possibly ended up near Eldridge Street, which I'm just speculating off the text message he sent. Plus, his father says that if for some reason his son didn't go off track and he did stay on the main road, Eldridge Street is not visible there. So it is highly suggested that Michael did end up on Eldridge that morning. Now, after that, we know he made his way to the McDonald's as employees saw him and the police obtained video surveillance of him there. After he was in McDonald's for a little minute, he made his way to Speedway, which was just up the street, and we know his phone pinged at McDonald's last, so we have to assume the phone died unless he lost it, hence why he requested to use the phone at the Speedway store. While we don't know if Michael was able to make a call, which is really frustrating because I feel like that could have been found out, some way, somehow, he left the speedway and he continued his straight walk until he reached the apartment complex. What was his reasoning for going there? That is unknown, but we do know there has been no sighting of him after this. There has been no activity on Michael's credit cards nor his social media. The police have said they have spoken with everyone involved in the situation that night, on top of the many witnesses, and they still have been left with no clues as to what happened to Michael McLean. Any type of information, whether it's big or small, can help Michael's family. As I always say, somebody out there has to know something. Paula has stressed that she will never give up searching for her son, And her, along with the rest of Michael's loved ones, are continuing to hold out hope that he will be found and found safely. Anyone with information about the disappearance of Michael McLean is asked to contact the Nashua Police Department's Criminal Investigation Lieutenant at 603-589-1663.